Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Chapter 21, I want to give you a minute to turn to it if you want to. We're in this series, this arising series. We've been in it ever since... Easter. This is our Easter tide series. And so we're going to look at another one of these post resurrection encounters that Jesus had with some of his disciples. And today we're looking at John chapter 21 verses 1 through 14. The passage is in the app. If you would like to click on it, you can follow along there. John 21, starting in verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So this is another one of these encounters Jesus had with some of his disciples after his resurrection. And this time, the disciples are back in Galilee, and the feel, when we read this, The vibe we pick up in reading this particular story is that the disciples have absolutely no idea what they're supposed to be doing. Profound events have occurred ever since they met Jesus, and especially over the past few weeks. And it seems quite clear from reading this story that they are completely unclear what all these events mean. They're unclear of the implication of these events in their daily lives, and they are unclear about what they're supposed to be doing right now. So they are living in that confusing and paralyzing space that we call now what? And Peter, who had a career in fishing before Jesus called him as a disciple, decides he's going to go fishing again. He's going to go back to what he knows how to do. He's going back to his work. It's in this now what phase. So he says, 
I'm going fishing. And the six other disciples say they're going to go, they're going to go with him and join him. And so they fish all night and they don't catch a thing. And in the morning, a guy from shore tells them to throw their net on the other side of the boat. And then the guy from shore yells, you will find some. It's this fisherman arrogance, like I know where the fish are. It's something that some of you have experienced with people like, say, Randy Chance, that kind of, I know right where the fish are and I'll take you to them kind of a thing. But they have no clue who this guy is on shore. But the disciples have empty nets, so they take his advice, and within a few minutes, they have a net so full of fish, they can't even get the boat into shore. And this dynamic of zero to overwhelming abundance triggers in John, the Bible said the apostle that the disciple Jesus loved, or that loved Jesus, that's John, it triggers in John that the guy on shore has to be Jesus. We had nothing, and now we have more than we can handle. It has to be the work of Jesus. And once they realize this, they rush back with their net full of fish, and Jesus makes them breakfast. So what's happening here? You may remember when Jesus first invited Peter and Andrew, brothers, to be his disciples. At the time he invited them, they were immersed in scratching out a living and building their family fishing business. And we ought not fly by that too quickly. Life was hard, money was tight, and Peter and Andrew were building and sustaining a business. And some of you know that's a lot of work. And then Jesus showed up, and they heard about him through the grapevine, and they probably went and heard him speak. And then one day, Matthew says Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Peter, and he saw Andrew working their family business, and he said to them, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the Bible then says, at once they left their nets and followed him. So just to note, it's important for what we're talking about today. A couple of the first disciples were small business owners. And Jesus calls them to follow him. And now here we are three years later. All this unbelievable, incredible stuff has happened. And they're back in Galilee where it all began. But now what? So Peter returns to what he knows how to do. And he goes fishing. And one of the takeaways in this story has to do with the presence and power of Jesus turning their empty net into a full net. And as a reminder, as a trigger to Peter of Jesus's initial invitation to him way back when, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, come follow me and I will give you a new purpose for living. I will give you a new mission to pursue. And this new mission is going to be centered on helping people see the love of God and discover God himself and the reconciling love that he offers. So we're in this arising series as we have been throughout Eastertide. And today the idea we are considering is the spiritual growth process whereby Jesus transforms our career into a calling. So the space I'd like you to be in, the things I'd like you to be thinking about today are pretty narrow. I want you to think about your work, your job, your career, or if you're a student, your schooling, or if you stay at home, your homemaking. 
invite you to be in that space for these few minutes. The invitation to follow Jesus and be his disciple is an invitation to live for him and be about his purposes. It is an invitation then to be an active participant in his redemptive mission wherever we are and whatever it happens to be we are doing. And so for the disciple of Jesus, our daily work, our jobs, our schooling, our careers is one of the primary venues where we follow Jesus and participate in his mission. We live on mission, as it is sometimes called. The Bible says when Jesus invited them to follow him, the Bible says Peter and Andrew left their nets. They left then their business, their job, and they literally followed Jesus around and learned his ways. That was their story for them to live out. But for the vast majority of us, our business, our job, our work, our career is one of the primary avenues where we live out our faith. And we live as active participants in his mission in that workplace setting. So leaving our nets, I would suggest, has to do with reprioritizing. Our calling as Christ followers now takes precedence over the pursuit of our career. And it's not that these things are inherently or necessarily at odds with each other. That is, it's not that calling and career are necessarily at odds with each other. It's that the one, our calling as a Christ follower, must take precedence over the other, the pursuit of our career. So it's a matter of being in our jobs, pursuing our careers, doing our work, running our business, whatever it might be, with our eyes and ears tuned into what the Spirit of God is doing in our work setting. What is the Spirit of God up to in our workplace? I would even narrow this down. Who are the people God has placed around us in our job environment? What is God doing in their lives? And what is our role as salt and light in this setting? Think of it this way. Jesus commissioned every one of his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, including us, go into all the world and make disciples and teach them to follow me. That is our commissioning. Be about my work. Be about my mission. So every follower of Jesus is called to be a minister and a missionary right where they are, in their homes, in their neighborhoods, at their schools, in their workplace, in their job, in their career. Every disciple of Jesus is called to be a minister and a missionary in those settings. What is God doing in those settings, and how can I join him in his mission in that setting? Another way to think of this is to think about the way we approach our work and our jobs and our career and our schooling. Especially, I would emphasize, the people we encounter in those settings and the opportunities we have and the influence we have on others in those settings. Think of it this way. God has set these people and these opportunities before us in those environments. 
He's placed us in these situations to fulfill his purposes, to demonstrate his love, to literally show his good news and share his good news and be his people who demonstrate by how we live, by how we interact, by how we respond, demonstrate the good way of his kingdom right there in those workplace environments. So moving from career to calling is not about changing jobs. It is not about leaving our career to become a missionary or to become a minister. It is about being a missionary and being a minister in our career, right where we are. See, the front lines of ministry and mission work are at Intel, Kaiser Permanente, Folsom High School, the offices of the state of California, the law firm where we work, the consulting practice we own, the franchise we just bought, the fire department where we work, the corporate office complex, Lazy Dog Restaurant, Rayleigh's Grocery Store, Target Department Store, the physical therapist's office, and so on we could go. The front lines of ministry and mission work are there. Or if you prefer it this way, the arena or the stadium or the field where the real action of mission and ministry happens is your school, your workplace, your neighborhood. And what happens here on a Sunday or in your small group or on this campus throughout the week is the locker room where we gather before the game and at halftime of the game so we can go back out onto the field and into the arena and actually play the game. Now, it's all well and good for me to sit here and talk about this, but in one very real sense, my job as a pastor and as a Christian leader is actually a step removed from where the real action is. So we thought this was the perfect topic to hear from someone who, if I can use the phrase, has a real job on the front lines, on the front lines of mission and on the front lines of ministry where the action really is. And my wife, Julie, has been a nurse for a very long time. And this may come off as sappy, I hope not, or this may strike you as, oh, how cute, the pastor's wife is going to come and say a few things. Please don't think that way. Uh, I beg you not to think that way. I was in a meeting this week and we were talking about the idea that this would be a great subject for somebody to come who has a real job on the front line that could talk about how do you do this ministry and mission through your work. And people other than me said, you know, Julie would be the perfect person to come and do this. And those of you who know Julie realize she has this unique way of entering into whatever situation she is in and being present in that situation and being salt and light in that situation. And she has a unique way of demonstrating God's love and grace and goodness in that situation. And she's done this for many years in her career as a nurse. So she's going to come and she's going to share in a second. And she and I are going to talk about this together. But I want to make sure you know the extent of her apprehension 
in sharing today. And she'll allude to this in what she says. But her concern is that this is going to come off as self-promoting of her or self-promoting of her and I. Like she's got this all figured out and she most certainly would not want to leave you with that impression. And believe me, we do not want, she and I do not want to give any impression of here we are, the smiling, pristine, perfect little happy ministry couple. Please erase that. Hit delete if that's rising in your mind. That said, Julie actually is amazing at fulfilling her calling and living on mission in her nursing career. So, Miss Julie, come and share with us. Thank you. Is it okay to share a little something before we start? Sure. Okay. So um, for, the, for, for those of you sending pictures of your marigold um, in, just know there'll be no picture from this guy. He killed the marigold. So Wait. it is dead. Dead. Yep. There's no growth, nothing happening. It's a jar of dirt. Yeah, but let's talk about what happened last Saturday. You remember? It was dead last it Saturday. It wasn't dead. That little was sprout was in there, and you put those banners in there to advertise Izzy's graduation. So Anyway, on with the message. Think maybe you killed it. <laughs> The killer of miracles. Ladies and gentlemen, the killer of miracles. <laughs> okay, this is going nowhere quick. So, uh, so a long time ago, you uh, were in early on in your life when you got into that age of going to school and thinking about future and thinking about a career. You were trying to decide what career to pursue. And uh, what I'd like you to do is talk about that process of how you ended up uh, becoming a nurse, kind of what you went through. Uh, your dad's influence, and so on. Sure. So um, I was never one of those kids that grew up and always knew I wanted to be a nurse. Um, but looking back now, I can see, definitely see that um, through my wiring and personality and um, gift set that I was actually, God was kind of putting those puzzle pieces together from a very early age. Um, but I didn't have that set out when I was little. I did have a father who was a surgeon, and a huge influence in my life. And um, from a very early age, he, um, after Sundays at church, he would take me. Um, I used to think it was like he chose me, but <laughs> there were four of us, and I'm sure it was a mandate from my mom that you're not going to the hospital without one of them. And I was definitely the most spirited of the four. So there were lots of times after Sunday church that he and I would go to the hospital in Racine, Wisconsin, St. Mary's, and I would tag along as he rounded on his patients. And there was something about hearing him, hearing his shoes on the, the pristine hallways of the hospital, um, encountering how he reacted to everyone that came across his path from the housekeeping person to the sisters that ran the hospital. And just he looked as though he was expectant to see them and glad to see them and that he couldn't wait to hear about how their day was going. And I just remember being kind of in awe that, wow, he, everybody that he comes in contact with, he's just so kind to and, and, and seems to really care about. Um, and then he would go in a patient's room and I had to sit on the floor in the outside of, in the hallway. And I remember the smell of alcohol, rubbing alcohol <laughs> and pine soul, like, will forever remind me of my youth. Um, sounds strange, but just that smell of a clean hospital and, and that smell of um, rubbing alcohol reminds me of just my dad being in the patient's room and hearing him have that little conversation with them. And, and it was just a really happy place for me. And um, a lot of times he'd be whistling and 
So those were stirrings that were starting to go on in my heart from a young age. And um, then fast forward through school, I, you know, was not a great student. Um, I, um, if you would have asked my parents, you know, what kind of a job would she be good for, it would have definitely not been like sit in a cubicle and sit at a desk for eight hours a day. I, from the time I would get up to the time they would blow their horn to get me to come home for dinner, I would be outside and in dirty and playing in the t- trees. And so I was very much a go kind of an outdoorsy kid. Um, but I always had this sense of care for people, deep care for people, um, kind of the underdog, but the hurting, the hurting animal, the, the, the hurting people. It was definitely part of who God had created me to be. And looking back now, I can see that definitely. So then co- college happened and I actually didn't think of nursing. I was like, Oh, I'll be a teacher. I'm, you know, I like kids. So tried college for two years and that was, I learned a lot, but I, I was a disastrous student. <laughs> my first year, for sure. My second year, a little better. But I just, the big school, the whole big classroom setting, it just wasn't really my gig. So um, that summer after my sophomore year, my dad, um, he would go to Peru like every other summer and give his vacation time and do surgeries on underprivileged kids with cleft palate and club foot with a bunch of surgeons from all over the country. And he said I could tag along and be the photographer, and I was like, yeah. So I, I went on that trip, and um, right away I was like in his setting, in his world, and I loved it. I was, you know, behind the camera, but I was also the nurse that was there. Was like, I need your help, and I I was there to help whatever way I could, feeding patients. She even had me give a, an injection, which would not be cool in this country, <laughs> but. She's like, pretend he's an orange, pretend he's an orange. And I remember I gave my first shot in Peru in the recovery room um, of a patient who was coming out of anesthesia. And this nurse was very impactful and just kind of inspiring. And then my dad seeing him at work. And so I came home from that trip and I said, I want to go to nursing school. What was the nurse's name? Nancy. Nancy. So this is off point, but what's that thing I don't like that you plug in and it shoots that stuff up in the air in the house? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. What is that called? Um, a diffuser. Diffuser. This, the, all that we could take pine saw and rubbing, rubbing alcohol, alcohol and make and that have yeah. an essential oil that will heal all the ailments of the universe. There you go, right? and clean your house. So, um, talk a bit about your personality. You mentioned this already, but your personality from an early age, and you mentioned um, being more outdoorsy, and you know, you go into the hospital with your dad. But talk about as you as you gone along and you've become more aware of who you are, you're more aware of your wiring. Talk about how who you are is expressed in nursing. And in particular, just as you think about younger people who may be watching, talk about when you were a little kid and your sister's dolls. <laughs> you're cute because you. the way you told me the questions were going to go and the way you're actually asking them, oh. totally oh. not happening, but that's okay. That's good. That's good for me. Yeah, um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, um, I only do this once in 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, again, yeah, my wiring was, um, uh, I can see where God's wiring of my personality is, uh, has lent me well to my career choice. But I also, that looking back, um, would, yes, take my, I've two older sisters, I would take their dolls, not mine, and um, I enjoyed creating wounds on them with purple sharpie 
all over their bodies. And then I would bandage them, you know, heal them. <laughs> and I got in a lot of trouble for that. So, But yeah. you saw that early on. You had that inclination yeah. toward helping and toward yes. caring those kinds yeah. of things. Okay, so you've been a nurse for a long time. So let's talk a bit about this idea of you know, actually going to work on a, on a day and a little bit of this whole notion of, you know, we have good days, we have bad days and just, you know, so it's not this way all the time. But talk about uh, on a day when you're awake and you're alert to God and you're it's a good day, in other words, and you're kind of in a mindset as you go about your daily duties as a nurse, uh, how you actually do that living in God's kingdom, doing your work, being present to God as you go about your daily work, and how that all works itself out in the context of nursing. Yeah. So there are definitely, bad, you know, days where I'm not feeling it or just, you know, I'm in a bad mood or, you know, just not attuned to God, um, God's leading in my life. There are definitely days like that. But I, I do have to say most days I do go into my day um, I, with the sense that, you know, God, um, first of all, help me not to harm anyone, help me to be a loving force in their life and help me um, give them the dignity and respect that they need. I work in a, a surgery center and, you know, it's it's very the patients are very vulnerable and a lot of times they don't want to they, uh, they don't want to be there. Um, and they're um, we're, we're asking them to do things that are really strange and for us, you know, it's our everyday job, so it can you can at times just kind of act like it's no big deal. But on my good days, I try to really remember that, you know, they have dignity and worth, and they are image bearers of Christ, and really give them that um, dignity that they deserve and, and be there as a calming force and someone that can um, ask their questions and not feel silly and you know, give them the respect and the grace that they need so to get through it. You're in, you're interacting with the person and you have your nursing responsibilities, but on a good day, what's, what you're seeing behind that is there's a human being there that was created in God's, God's image and you're, you're doing your best to be attentive to them and recognize the shoes they're in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So talk regarding that in that same vein. Talk about the recent experience you had with someone who you knew was particularly mm-hmm. vulnerable and just one of the ways you tried to convey dignity to them um, oh, yeah. given her situation. So um, this was a real recent, um, and we're going to allude to it in a little bit, about um, kind of transferring from my surgery center over to a, uh, the Roseville Hospital and I came across a patient in the ICU, and my job was to strictly be there with her and, you know, if she needed anything, um, help her out. And her story, I won't go into detail, but she was there under, um, you know, really difficult circumstances. She um, was homeless, was married, homeless with four kids, and ended up in the ER and then in the ICU. And, um, you know, you could just, she wouldn't look up from her pillow. She, she you could just feel the shame in the room. Um, and I just sat like next to her bed and I asked her, you know, are you warm enough? And yes, she was warm enough. And so she was kind of dozing on and off. And I just sat next to her and noticed that her hair was just a, just a mess. It was long and weed, um, you could see some grass in it, like weeds and just all knotted up. And so I just asked her, I said, could I brush your hair? 
And she kind of looked at me and said, yeah, that would be great. So I, it took about an hour, but I took a comb and some water and just worked through every little tangle. And there were branches in there and just got it all cleaned out and, and put it in a little braid and toppled it on her top of her head. And, and it was, it was a good moment. It, she looked at me, like looked at me and I looked at her and smiled and we didn't have to say anything, but there was just a connection. And then I actually got to see her three days later. She was being wheeled out. Big smile on her face, and she gave me a little wave. And That's great. So. so the past few months, you mentioned this a second ago, but past few months with the virus, it's, it's created all sorts of challenges and chaos for frontline medical workers. And, and you've been shifted around a bit. And so what was it like for you when you realized that you were going to have to walk effectively walk toward this virus while the rest of us were running away from it. Um, yes, that was, um, a, a, that was a bit daunting. It, our, my first response was, which it usually is, is, oh, I'll go. You know, we, we were asked by our facility, you know, could we, we closed because we weren't, um, we were scheduled surgeries, so we weren't um, life or limb, they call them. And they wanted us to go to Roseville, and they needed all our protective equipment. So they gave us the option of staying home and not getting paid or going to Roseville. And right away I volunteered, and then I get over there, and, and I'm like, what did I just do? Like that first week was chaotic, and, and no one quite knew the system, and new, you know, new processes were being set in place. And I was asked to go ICU one day and mother baby the next and be a greeter at the front door the next. It was just all over the map. So I went in full throttle, but, and then, then the fears and doubts started to creep in a little bit. I was, um, worried, you know, am I going to get the virus? Am I going to bring it home to my family? Um, is this my new normal? And so I definitely, some doubts started to creep in that first week. So, uh, and, and then you, one of the things that you and I have talked about over the course of that was that idea of the comfort zone and stepping, reaching out past that comfort zone. Yeah. Talk about as, as this all came up, and again, in this context of what's God doing, what's my place, what's my role here, talk about that, that movement beyond the comfort zone for you. Yeah, so the first week I was, I started to get some doubts and I had kind of a long weekend to think about it and pray about it. And in my heart, I knew the right thing to do was to go and be a part of this and to, and to help where I could and, and, you know, do whatever I could, um, however that looked. Um, but I really needed fully to rely on God. And it was a good reminder for me that in my everyday job, I can sometimes get overconfident or go, I've got this and, you know, still be there for the patients, but not really have a sense that God is leading my every step. And I really had that feeling and Roseville still do that God is leading my every step and that, um, that, um, I, you know, just literally pray on my walk into work, you know, Lord, just show me where the need is and show me what you want me to do today and help me to be a presence to the patients I encounter, and um, I have felt that strongly that he's been there with me. So as you live in that, again, on those days when you can stay in that space, you've, you've had to enter this new arena where a lot of the nursing is not what you've been used to for a long time and relearn a bunch of stuff. So maybe just tell one 
story, again, you can't go into particulars, but one story where these, these things we've talked about, vulnerability of a patient, the patients can't have family members there now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 you know, they're in a space where they don't want to be there. They may be discouraged. They may not be in the best mood. Tell one story where you saw God, you know, you talked about you're walking and you're praying and you sense God and you just kind of granted dignity to somebody in one of these vulnerable things and you saw him at work in that. Yeah. There's a couple um, on a, the short one was, is just the communication aspect of the whole patients would get admitted and then they could have absolutely no visitors. So one of my first days um, on the floor, a medical surgical floor, there was a patient in, in her 80s and she had been dropped off by her son and daughter-in-law who lived in Chico and they thought she was going in to have an emergency gallbladder surgery. Well, long story, that surgery never happened, and she was there a full night and another day when I met her, and the family had no clue. They thought she had gone to surgery and that something must have gone terribly wrong. And so the nurses there are, are so stellar. They're, they're just they're heroes in my mind, the nurses that work every day in the setting that I'm now in in Roseville. And they were, they're busy. Their patient load is crazy. And I was sort of an extra person. And so I just took it upon myself to call the family, connect them with their mom. Um, I used my phone at first and then we were able to actually later use an iPad, but I, I was able to take pictures with her, walk her through the process down to surgery because she did eventually go and just kind of update the family. And they were so appreciative, but it was, it was a tiny thing, but it meant a ton to them. And then another story a few weeks later, this was just a couple weeks ago, there was an older gentleman in their um, same unit, just um, had had a pneumonia, not COVID, but had been on a ventilator. And he was uh, off the ventilator and in my unit, and he just did not want to be there. He he wanted to go home. He wanted to be in Pollock Pines where the trees are, and he just didn't want to be there. Um, and because of the ventilator and the respirator, he, he was unable to swallow very well. So he was per- turning away his meals. And so we finally got his meals pureed. And one of the meals I was there with him was lunch. And I just said, let's just call him Michael. I said, hey, Michael, you know, let me let's just I know this looks like mystery food, but let's just take a, a bite of each. And you give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down if it's good. And, you know, so he kind of agreed half heartedly to try these, this food. And so it, it took like 45 minutes, but I, we tried the orange food, and that was definitely a thumbs down. And then the yellow food, that was good. So we ate all the yellow food, and then the brown food was sort of in between, and then the pudding was yay. And we did the whole meal, and I said, well, you know, I hope that was a good meal. And he said, well, that was the best meal I've ever had. And I said, wow, you know, here, that's great to hear. He goes, no, in my life. And it just, you know, I, I it just took me aback to hear someone talking about a hospital, pureed hospital food as like the best meal of his life. And I think it was just because someone took the time to kind of have that meal with him and talk him, talk to him through it. I learned too that he loved cowboys. So we talked all John Wayne movies and, you know, was Jimmy Stewart really a good cowboy? I don't think so. You know, John Wayne was the bomb and and it, he smiled, you know, towards the end of that meal, and I just felt like in that moment that is exactly what I was there to do, was to just be with another person, um, give them their dignity back, and just uh, truly care for them in that moment. 
So last thing, we're in a time of year where people are graduating high school, graduating college, um, thinking about what they're going to do in terms of their job, their career, their vocation. And what would you say, just briefly, what would you say to a person who wants to follow Christ and is trying to sort out their career? How do they, how do they figure that out in terms of what they should do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first of all, I think just uh, be aware of the things in your own soul that um, inspire you or that you're moved by. Um, passion is sometimes a word that gets thrown around and you might be going, well, I'm, I don't, you know, you might not understand that word or not think you're passionate about anything, but, you know, what makes you smile or um, what stirs your your soul? I would ask those kind of questions, and I would also um, maybe say, you know, what would you do if if you could do anything? What would you do if you weren't afraid? And just really kind of let that ruminate a little bit and, and, and not be too quick to have to have some grand plan because um, whatever it is and wherever you're going, there's a journey um, to get there, and it's really more about the journey. And everywhere you go, you encounter people, and those people are image bearers, and that that is your mission field right there. And God will do the rest. You, he knows your strengths, your weaknesses, how you're wired, um, and he has a purpose for your life. So I wouldn't get too wrapped up in the final destination, but really try to just um, be present on the journey. Good. Thanks. Appreciate sure. It. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for... Uh, your good work among us for the way in which you have empowered Julie in such remarkable ways to be an example of caring about the person and being called to, to demonstrate your love to people. And we continue to pray as we, uh, as people run businesses, work in offices, teach school, go to school, um, and all the different jobs and careers that for those who are Christ followers, that following you and seeking you would be the priority and that our jobs would be the means by which we demonstrate how good you are and we demonstrate who you are. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.